the world is going to end and humans love telling stories about how it'll happen. Culprits include AI revolutions, widespread disease, alien invasions, nuclear bombs, ape armies, climate change, even the mother effing moon. And sure, some of these are more realistic than others, that's why I always make sure to toss some Big Macs to the chimps when I go to the zoo, but everyone's got their own unique beliefs about how humanity will be wiped out. The most epic end of the world story of them all though has to be Ragnarok the Norse apocalypse. There have been many depictions of this as well, like Netflix's Ragnarok series and of course in the MCU, but my favorite reimagining of the mythos is God of War Ragnarok. The writers and developers' attention to detail and the creative changes they made to the witch's prophecy deserve to be highlighted. So today, exactly one year and one day after the game's release, we're going to look at every single thing it got right and wrong about the end of the Nordic world. And by the end of this episode, you'll have a whole new level of appreciation of what may be the greatest game of all time. Before we dive into it though, I want to very quickly thank you all for making our Underworld Overlords drop our most successful line of merchandise we've ever released. To those who haven't copped some yet and want to pay tribute to the gods of the dead, Hades, Osiris, and Hell, and look damn good while doing it, follow our link to the Mere Mortal store in the description and pinned comment. And make sure to use code RAGNAROCK for 10% off. And now, let's jump into the beginning of the end. Part 1. Fimblewinter So normally, when I go through the Norse mythos, I give each story and poem its own section and break down the info that we learn by the individual source. Today, though, we're doing something a little different. Because Ragnarok is mentioned across a number of different poems and stories, and each of them says mostly the same thing, I'm just going to condense them all into one cohesive narrative so you get the complete story in one go with all the juicy details. That being said, there are some very minor points where the sources differ from each other, so I will be highlighting those as well. If you want to do your own research after this episode, the three main sources I'm using today are two poems called Vafthrufnismal and Voluspa, which can be found in the Poetic Edda, and the first chapter of the Prose Edda, which is called Gilfaginning. Per usual, I'll have links to reliable translations of both Eddas in the description. Now, according to our sources, Ragnarok is preceded by Fimblewinter. Fimblewinter is described as a time of great pain and suffering for all living things. Endless amounts of snow will fall from the sky, accompanied by severe frost, piercing winds, and the sun will be blocked out entirely, offering no relief. Fimblewinter will span the duration of three winters in succession without any summer to break them up, followed by three additional winters. The conditions will be so harsh that humans won't have the option of living peacefully. They'll be forced into fighting and killing each other to survive. Brother versus brother, son versus daughter, versus mother versus father. Sacred oaths will be broken along with swords, spears, axes, and shields, and by the time Ragnarok arrives, there will be no man left who is loyal to another. In God of War, Ragnarok is triggered by the death of Baldur, the son of Odin and Freya. When he accidentally impales himself on Atreus's mistletoe arrow, the protection spell that his mother cast on him is broken. This allows him to feel pain and allows Kratos to snap his skinny little neck. <laughs>
Our Old Norse resources don't explicitly state that there's a direct connection between Baldur's death and Fimblewinter, but the chapter of the Prose Edda that details Ragnarok is immediately after the chapter on Baldur's death, which in myth is caused by Loki tricking Baldur's blind brother Hother into impaling him with a mistletoe dart. So that's likely where the developers got the idea to associate the events. I guess killing Balder really did bring on Fimblewinter. It never stopped snowing after that day. Another twist the God of War developers added is they showed us the effect Fimblewinter had on realms other than our own. Midgard is portrayed as the desolate, lawless landscape that the Eddas warn us about, but then we have Svartalfheim, the realm of the dwarves, where the weather is excessively warm with earthquakes triggering the release of gases contained in the earth. Aye lad, Fimblewinter doesn't strike all realms quite the same way. Weird that Fimble Winter doesn't always make it winter. In Midgard it does, but as you can see, the effects here appear far more gaseous in nature. Observe the geysers. Observe the aforementioned aroma. These effects were present before in some form, but now there's new extremity to them. The Eddas don't offer a single hint regarding how the eight realms other than Midgard are affected, so I really appreciated getting to see this in the game. Part 2, Ragnarok Before the Battle The lead-up to Ragnarok is where the mythos and God of War's portrayal of it gets really interesting. I'm not saying it wasn't before, but the level of detail the developers managed to incorporate here is truly impressive to a Nordic nerd like myself. For instance, let's take a look at Angerboda. In the game, she resides in Jotunheim, the realm of the giants, specifically in a forest called Ironwood and after the game is over, we can still find her there along with Fenrir. Well, in the Voluspa poem, we're told that before Ragnarok, there'll be an old hag residing in the Midgard forest of Ironwood who gives birth to and raises Fenrir's wolf children Skoll and Hati who will devour the sun and moon. Now there are some obvious differences here, like Angerboda is definitely not an old hag and it's Fenrir himself who joins her, not his children whom she gave birth to. Thank Odin. Also, Skull and Hati are not Fenrir's children in the game, but Garms, another wolf from the Norse mythos who's often conflated with Fenrir. But more on him next section. It is still foretold they will catch their prey on the day Ragnarok begins, though, so in game Odin made a point to capture and imprison them so this couldn't be done. But much to his chagrin, some giants came along and freed them. Another important point to mention is that depending on your source, the sun and moon could be devoured by Skoll and Hati or Fenrir himself. In the Gilfaginning and Voluspa, it's Skoll and Hati who will block out the sun, but in the poem called Vafruthnismal, which follows Odin's wisdom contest with the giant, Odin himself says that Fenrir will assail the sun. Whichever one you want to go with, the end result is the same the sun ain't gonna be around much longer. The game also references the sun being blacked out, but it's not devoured like in myth. Instead, there's an eclipse on Vanaheim. Then, Skull and Hati go back to chasing the sun and moon. Now, one thing the developers left out is that Voluspa also mentions three roosters that will crow at the onset of Ragnarok. A red rooster called Fialar resides above a Jotun named Egther who lives in the Ironwood Forest and plays the harp. 
Another, called Golenkambi, Goldencomb, lives in Valhalla, and he'll wake the heroes in Odin's Hall. And there's also an unnamed Soot Red Rooster in Hell, who will alert the warriors living there that Ragnarok has arrived. When these roosters crow, the ever-watching Heimdall will know the time has come to blow his Gialar horn. And when his fellow gods hear it, they'll meet together in council to say their goodbyes and prepare for war, as will the elves, dwarves, Jotuns, and the forces of hell. In the game, it's Kratos himself who blows the Gialar horn. Something about Heimdall being unavailable at the time. But the end result is the same. The realms unite for battle. Only in this case, none of them are fighting for Asgard. They're trying to destroy it. And we, the audience, are rooting for them. Before we move into the battle, though, I want to give a quick shout-out to the sponsor who made this week's episode possible, Squarespace. If you've been watching Messed Up Origins for a while, you already know why I love Squarespace. They even the playing field by giving creators, entrepreneurs, and go-getters all the tools we need to build beautiful websites that can help our businesses grow. From their nearly endless library of award-winning design templates to their intuitive interface that lets you drag and drop boxes however you please, Squarespace has made formerly cumbersome processes like buying a domain, creating galleries to show off artwork, listing products for sale, or collecting emails for community newsletters nearly effortless. And because Squarespace knows how important a website is for success, they offer their users marketing tools and analytics so you can see how much traffic your site gets and which keywords to optimize for so you can market yourself more effectively and grow those numbers like you never thought possible. So whether you want to give your business a fresh new online identity or get professional with your passion, you can go to squarespace.com slash John Solo to start your free trial. And when your site is ready for launch, use code John Solo to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Part 3. The Battle as the sound of the Gialar horn reverberates through the realms, Yggdrasil itself will shake down to its roots, causing the chains of anyone in prison to shatter. That means Loki, Garm, and Fenrir will all be freed to wreak their own unique brand of havoc. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the mythological Garm and Fenrir have a lot in common and may actually be the same figure. Not only are they both wolves who oppose the Aesir, but they're also both imprisoned until Ragnarok arrives. The one detail that throws a wrench in this theory's gears is that they're both imprisoned in distinctly separate locations. Garm at the gates of hell where he stands guard, and Fenrir on an island called Lingvi. Personally, I love the way that God of War reconciled these variations. They made Garm his own distinct character, and Fenrir the pet wolf of Atreus, a clever twist on him being the son of Loki, because Atreus is Loki according to the Jotun prophecy. My name on the wall. The giants called me... Loki? In the beginning of God of War Ragnarok, Fenrir dies and his spirit leaves his body. And much later in the game, Atreus frees Garm from his chains, then implants Fenrir's soul into him. So they start out as different wolves, but end up as the same. Which also technically makes in-game Fenrir the father of Skull and Hati, just like he is in myth. Now, unlike the game, where the final battle takes place on Asgard's doorstep, in myth, the war is waged in Midgard in the field of Vigrithr, which stretches a hundred miles in every direction, and appropriately, the fearsome foes approach from every direction. From the north sails the ship Nagalfar, which is made from the toenails of the dead, 
Loki stands at the helm while a Jotun named Trim steers it and the ship is filled with the residents of hell. We only see Nagelfar for a brief moment in the game, only it's not made of toenails. Can't say I blame the developers for leaving that detail out. The ship sails into Asgard with Hell's army on board, but ends up being destroyed by a Bifrost blast before the undead warriors can do any damage. At least that army is already dead. Back to the myth, from the east come the Jotans, who curiously are led by Hrim according to the Veluspa, the same giant that the Gilfaginning says is steering Nagelfar. This is one of those times where the prose Edda and the poetry contradict each other, but regardless, I think it's safe to say that the giants, the Hellions, and Loki are all on the same side. Also fighting on this side are Loki's children, the aforementioned Fenrir, and of course, Jormungandr, the World Serpent. We aren't told what his daughter Hel is up to during the battle, but I would assume that she's preparing for the influx of residents that she's about to receive in the underworld after every mortal in Midgard is killed. In side note, according to myth, these three are Loki's children with the giantess Angerboda, the inspiration for Angerboda and I really love how clever the game's writers were with this. Because Atreus and Angerboda are a little too young to be popping out babies, but they use magic to transplant a Jotun soul into the snake that would become Jormungandr, in essence, giving birth to him. And Atreus does leave his first son Fenrir with Angerboda when he goes off on his post-game adventure, so in a way, they are still their children. The goddess Hel is nowhere to be found in the game. Instead, she's replaced by Hrosselvegger. In myth, Hrosselvegger, whose name translates to Corpse Swallower, is an eagle-shaped Jotun who sits at the end of heaven and his wings are the originator of wind. In the game, Hrosselvegger is the overlord of hell, or the living embodiment of it, it's not exactly clear. But according to a post-game conversation with Mimir, she is looking for a career change. Mimir, what exactly did you promise the large bird? Oh, nothing too horrifying. It's just that she'd like to retire. Retire? Hell's Eagle wants to retire? Indeed. And don't ask me what she expects to do with her free time. Can she even do that? Not the... Hell? Anyway, while all of these monsters are assembling, Odin's forces assemble as well. The Aesir ride down to Midgard on the Bifrost, along with the Valkyries and the Einherjar, the warriors who died in battle and were brought to Valhalla to train for this very moment. Now, it's at this point where the battle really starts to heat up. Literally. After the Aesir army and the Hellions meet on the battlefield, the sons of Muspel approach from the south. The fire giant, known as Surtur, and his army come racing down the Bifrost, which shatters under their feet. Then Surtur uses his flaming sword to burn Yggdrasil itself dooming the nine realms that are held in its branches to utter destruction. As the world tree burns before them, Odin and his son Thor charge into battle side by side, but they soon separate to confront their rivals. Thor attacks Jormungandr with everything he has, and it's truly a sight to behold. The impact of his mighty hammer on the world serpent's massive skull echoes through the air like thunder, and the two bless each other with the greatest battle of their lives. In the end, Jormungandr is bested and collapses to the ground but as Thor walks away triumphant, he's in for a surprise. He only makes it nine paces before Jormungandr uses his final bit of strength to vomit out all of the venom remaining in his body. And with a serpentine smile on his face, he watches as Thor's body melts into the earth. 
Even still, the Guardian of Midgard denies the Serpent the satisfaction of showing fear. Instead, his final thoughts are that of anger and frustration at his final duel ending in a stalemate. Now, as miserable as Thor's death sounds, I honestly think he got it worse in God of War. He does have an epic fight with Jormungandr that we get to watch in the distance and ends with the god hitting the serpent so hard that he sends him back in time, but soon after, he's defeated by Kratos, who spares him the death penalty only for his own father to stab him through the heart when he refuses to obey his insane orders anymore. No. I didn't want this. Sure, it might not have been as physically painful as melting into a puddle of goo, but the emotional pain at having the man he served his entire life for, betraying him at the very first moment he questioned his orders, had to have hurt. Back to the mythos, while Thor was occupied with the World Serpent, Odin was left to face Fenrir on his own, and he did not fare well. We don't get many details about their duel, other than the fact that Fenrir swallowed Odin, which had to be a satisfying moment for the wolf, considering how the Allfather betrayed him all those years ago and left him stranded on an island with a sword jammed in his mouth. Unfortunately for Fenrir, though, his victory did not last long. After witnessing the death of his father, an Aesir named Vithar uses his massive leather shoe to step on the wolf's lower jaw so it can't close. Then he grabs the wolf's upper jaw and snaps it, shattering the bones in his skull, and shoves his sword down his throat stabbing the wolf directly in the heart. Now, Odin's death in the game goes down very differently, but it does share the common theme of his selfish acts catching up to him. After being beaten into the ground by Kratos, Atreus, and Freya, his ex-wife, Atreus uses the same incantation he used on Fenrir to trap Odin's soul in a vessel that would soon be destroyed by the dwarf Sindri, whose only desire was to avenge his brother Brock after Odin brutally stabbed him while disguised as Tyr, the Norse god of war. But while Odin's death brings the game's war to a conclusion, in myth, the battle rages on. We're told that Garm and Tyr kill each other, as do Loki and Heimdall, though we aren't given any details on their deaths, and then the god Freyr seeks out Surtur and is killed by him because he doesn't have a sword to defend himself. Freyr's death is an interesting one in the game, because while he arrives at the battlefield without his sword, he does summon it to him immediately. Then, at the end, when Surtur fulfills his destiny by becoming the embodiment of Ragnarok and destroying Asgard along with himself, Freyr buys our hero's time to escape by using his sword to hold back the destruction for as long as he can. Then, he's killed in a blaze of glory. It's a tragic fate, but at least he told us in advance that he was okay with it. Going out in a blaze of glory means that Odin earns too? That's where I'll be. A big, fat smile on my face. But back to the myth, with many of the Aesir defeated, along with the Valkyries and the Einherjar, there was little to no one left to defend the realms from the onslaught. The sun blackened and stars rained down from the sky while Surtur's flames consumed the earth. Thor's battle with Jormungandr also caused the world's oceans to rise, and soon, Midgard was overtaken by fire and water. This was the end of the world as generations of mankind had come to know it. But worry not because it would rise again. Chapter 4, The New World 
After the flames of Surtur are extinguished and the sea level settles back to normal, the earth will rise from the waves again, and it'll be beautiful, green, and lush. The sun was devoured by Fenrir, or Skull, or Hati, one of the cosmic wolves, but the good news is the sun had a daughter to pick up the mantle and follow in her exact footsteps. I'm also happy to report that while the human race will be changed forever, it won't have gone extinct. Two humans named Leaf and Leaf Thrasser will descend from their hiding place in the trees, which must have been really tall considering the entire world was flooded and they'll repopulate the Earth with the next iteration of human beings. And while many of the gods that we've come to know and love through our exploration of the Norse mythos will be dead, there will be some survivors. Odin's sons, Vithar and Vali, will inhabit the plains where Asgard once stood, the sons of Thor, Magni and Modi will inherit Mjolnir, and Baldur and Hothur will also return from Hell with no hard feelings between them. These gods will meet in Ithavolar, the very same location that the first generation of gods convened to construct shrines and design tools, and they'll build a new city while sharing stories of the days of old. In a hall with a golden roof that's more fair than the sun itself, these righteous rulers will dwell, and they will be happy forever after. Don't get it twisted though, the new world will not be all sunshine and rainbows. There will be a lot of those, but the poem that gives us a glimpse into the next generation ends on a fairly ominous note. With the dragon Neithog, which prior to Ragnarok spent its days gnawing at the roots of Yggdrasil, flying down from the mountains with corpses in its wings. I was very curious what this might symbolize, so I looked up what Old Norse specialist Jackson Crawford had to say on the matter. And by the way, if you haven't checked out his channel yet, I can't recommend it enough. But he suggests that just like how good is reborn into the new world, evil will be as well. In other words, shit ain't gonna change that much. Now there are obviously some pretty big differences between the outcome of Ragnarok in myth versus in the game. For instance, the gods who are listed as part of this new generation either don't exist in the game's universe or were killed by Kratos and friends who have no respect for prophecy. I need... No! How did you... What are you doing? This is a much better knife than mother's. But there is actually an in-game explanation for those discrepancies. You see, that poem that we've been referencing throughout this episode, Voluspa, is called The Witch's Prophecy, and in the poem, Odin consults with Osiris to learn about the creation and destruction of the cosmos. Well, in the game, Odin also consulted with Osiris. They call her Groa, who in myth is actually completely separate from the witch in Voluspa, but in the game, they combine her into one figure. When the game's Odin finds out that Groa has the gift of prophecy, he pays her a visit to get some answers about Ragnarok. But Groa knows that the Aesir are nothing but trouble and that Odin and Thor caused her husband's death. So she throws Odin off course with a fake prophecy. Then Odin kills her so no one else can have the information. She lied. Groa lied. Of course she did. <laughs> Odin's working off a false prophecy. <laughs> we, the audience, are not given many specifics of this false prophecy, but it's possible that certain details from myth, like the sun and moon being devoured or Magni and Modi surviving to inherit Thor's hammer, were part of it. Meanwhile, other details, like Baldur's death causing Fimblewinter, were legit, just so Odin didn't suspect any shenanigans 
or realize that Ragnarok actually meant the destruction of Asgard and the Aesir, not the entire cosmos. It's also possible that Kratos showing up in the Nordic lands along with some of the decisions that he and Atreus made along the way threw off some of the specifics. We do see some survivors though, like Thor's daughter Thrude inherits Mjolnir instead of Magni and Modi. I'll make you proud, Dad. Sif and Hildisfini can be found cleaning up the mess left in Vanaheim and finding new homes for the Midgardians. Freya obviously survives, and as previously mentioned, Angerboda and Fenrir are chin-chillin' in Jotunheim. But there is one line in the previously mentioned Voluspa poem that I have to mention because it gives us a tantalizing look at the new era. Actually, it's not technically in Voluspa, but Voluspa in Skama, which translates to the short Voluspa and includes an excerpt from another poem called Hindlu Yoth, or Song of Hindla. Stanza 44 reads, But another god will come, a god even greater, and I dare not speak his name. Few can see further beyond the day when the wolf will swallow Odin. The arrival of a god even greater than the ones previously worshipped. Who could this be referring to? The truth is, no one knows for sure. Many suspect that it could be the Christian god arriving in Scandinavia, but it could also be one of the aforementioned survivors of Ragnarok who ascends in place of Odin. I would love to hear your interpretations of that one, so be sure to comment them down below. I also want to point out that this may have been incorporated into the ending of God of War, where Kratos discovers a Jotun mural depicting his ascension and worship as the supreme god. But while this may be the end of the Ragnarok myth, it's time for us to unpack the real-world apocalypse that led to its creation. Chapter 5, The Real Ragnarok It is impossible to know exactly what ancient peoples were thinking when sharing myths and legends, but it sure is fun to speculate. Was this story made up to teach a lesson, a mythologized account of a real historical event, or something else entirely? Well, in the case of Ragnarok, the evidence points to it being a reality. Don't get me wrong, a giant serpent that's 25,000 miles long probably didn't rise out of the ocean and battle a god to the death, but when you look at the more natural phenomenon listed in the Eddas, like snowstorms, floods, and fire falling from the sky, it actually seems possible. The reason I say this is because in the year 536 CE, life was really hard. And I don't mean in the usual way where there was no Wi-Fi or bidets. I'm talking increased crime, starvation, disease, hypothermia, and also no Wi-Fi or bidets. According to medieval historian Michael McCormick, who was interviewed by Science.org, 536 CE may have been the worst year to be alive in recorded history thanks to a volcanic eruption in either Iceland or North America that spewed ash across the entire northern hemisphere. You see, when a volcano erupts, it spews sulfur, bismuth, and other substances high into the atmosphere where they essentially form an aerosol veil that reflects the sun's light back into space. With the air filled with fog and dust, blocking out the sun more effectively than Persian arrows, the temperatures fell to about 2 degrees Celsius in the summer and stayed that way for years. Because these harsh conditions were prolonged by another volcanic eruption a few years later in 540 CE, making that decade the coldest on record in 2,000 years. As the ash and dust spread across Scandinavia, Ireland, Mesopotamia, and China, 
Crops failed, people starved, and it's safe to assume that many of those who survived had to fight tooth and nail to do so. We have some letters from the Roman statesman Cassiodorus who lived during that miserable time, and in 538, he described the conditions he was enduring. The middle layer is thickened by the rigor of snow and rarefied by the beams of the sun. This is the great inane, roaming between the heavens and the earth. When it happens to be pure and lighted up by the rays of the sun, it opens out its true aspect. But when alien elements are blended with it, it is stretched like a hide across the sky and suffers neither the true colors of the heavenly bodies to appear nor their proper warmth to penetrate. This often happens in cloudy weather for a time. It is only its extraordinary prolongation which has produced these disastrous effects, causing the reaper to fear a new frost in harvest, making the apples harden when they should grow ripe, souring the old age of the grape cluster. So what does this all have to do with Ragnarok? Well, I admit this may be a stretch, but this time of lawlessness, depravity, death, and decay probably felt like it was the end of the world to those who endured it. Like even the optimists living back then had to be like, I'm pretty sure we'll survive this, but if I see one big-ass monster, the end is nigh. A volcano raining down fire and triggering a nearly decade-long winter is sure to leave an impression on those who live to witness it. And even if they didn't think it was the end of the world in that moment, it probably gave them a good idea of what the end would be like. Or, you know, some wise men just took a bunch of mushrooms and had the epiphany that if the world was going to end, it would probably be from a combination of natural disasters and humans' need for survival overriding any moral code that existed prior to that. But I want to hear what you think, mere mortals. Was Ragnarok real, or was the belief in it based on something else? Also, how well or poorly do you think God of War's developers incorporated the mythos? And should I dissect any other portrayal of Ragnarok in pop culture? Let me know by hitting up Messed Up Origins on social media. All those links can be found in the description. And make sure to sacrifice those five star and follow buttons to the gods. Not only will you get more messed up mythology and folklore content sent to your device every Friday, but you'll also be supporting the podcast and helping us grow. Until next time, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first. Thank you.